Welcome to the Check Your Head Podcast, the podcast where notable musicians and experts come and share their stories and solutions for mental health and wellness. I'm your host, Mari Fong, a music journalist and life coach for musicians, and we're still celebrating Mental Health Awareness Month for the month of May. The Check Your Head Podcast was proud to participate with MTV, Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, and others for Mental Health Action Day on May 20th. Today we have a great example of what happens when you take action on your mental health, especially when you grow up with depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Lead singer and songwriter for the surf punk band The Happies not only battled these mood disorders, but also an opioid addiction, which eventually landed him in a San Francisco jail. Today we have Nick Petty of The Happies share his superhero comeback story and also a special performance by the Happies of I Just Don't Know, a new song that officially drops on June 4th off their upcoming album entitled ADHD. Next, we speak with a 30-year veteran of the music industry, formerly an A&R and artist manager at Mercury Records in the UK, and co-author of the new book, Can Music Make You Sick? Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition. Sally Ann Gross is our expert today, who will give us an inside look into the current state of the music industry, along with a variety of opportunities available to musicians beyond being the artist on stage. But first, let's hear Nick Petty of the Happies share his story. Songs have never been hard to uh, come up with because they're kind of like kept me out of anxiety it's just the pain before the surge of a song is coming is sometimes really awkward and kind of hard and these times have brought a lot of new songs but a lot of anxiety music has been really sacred to me like for people religion is it's like literally that important to me and and i hold it really close and i'm just very grateful for the band and how down they are and just go-getters and down for the same thing and music means a lot to them I lost a dad right before 2020, so it's been kind of weird. I know people are losing people right now. The last couple of weeks have been kind of hard, and it's been like waves. The happiest is like a venting mechanism of getting the inner shit out. As weird as it sounds, I don't like talking. I have a lot of baggage. I was in addiction and went to county jail. I'm not proud of that, but I talk about it because I know the importance of talking about it and and how that decreases the stigma and makes the world a better place. When you had a hard drug addiction, a big thing is like figuring out how other people feel and talking to them. And that gets you outside of yourself. Because if you're like an addict or you have severe anxiety, the only thing to get you out of your head is altering the conversation to something else. Music's the same thing where you can do a sad song and sometimes it'll make you feel a little bit worse or a good song will make you feel better. Well, I totally understand that. I mean, I've talked to quite a few musicians and oftentimes musicians find it more comfortable speaking through their music and speaking through their lyrics and expressing in that language opposed to words and face-to-face conversations can be, you know, intimidating. But Nick, I was reading that you had symptoms of ADHD, depression, and anxiety as you were growing up. Yeah, I was on Adderall, like staggeringly early. I was on Adderall at about six years old. So growing up, I was like a class clown. And I I was always the kid in the class who'd have to write a thousand times. I will not disrupt the class. I will not disrupt. I would be the kid with the table turned to the side. 
I just was hyper, you know, I was doing my thing. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people liked it. And some teachers definitely did not like it at all. It was fun. And it was hectic, though, because I always felt like an alien where I got along with everybody really well. But I felt I was lacking in some sort of way. And it was kind of weird growing up. But I didn't like the meds either. Like I'd spit out the, the meds a lot. They give me Adderall. And it would wind down my personality. I felt like I was on drugs without them. So the Adderall actually calmed me down like a sedative would. and made me really weird and quiet. And I didn't like that. Granted, though, in high school, I probably wouldn't have passed some classes without uh, the help of it. In math, specifically, I needed it to, to focus. Like, they're reading something for 20 minutes in class. And then I don't remember what they said. Because I was thinking about 20 other things. That type of stuff happened consistently over and over and over. ADHD is often very reactive. I mean, you're reacting immediately to things that are happening in your environment, and it's tougher to control that. So on one hand, the medication kind of dampened your personality, but you were able to focus to to get through your studies and take a test and all those um, good things. Yeah. ADD, anxiety, and depression. It sounds kind of depressing, but I don't remember really a time I didn't have that. And I think that's why I liked music because music itself was this thing that I could escape through. It's literally that concrete. It works for me. Oftentimes, people that have ADHD can suffer with depression and anxiety. It's kind of like a ball of these different things that could happen. What are some of the things that would go through your head when you were anxious? Oh, God. It's just (laughs) giving up. Just I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can hack this. And pretty dark shit. And I think it's important when you have anxiety to remember that you're not a product of your brain and that it's doing its thing. But your thought system isn't parallel to the thoughts you think because people think a lot of crazy shit and will never do it all over the world every day. So anxiety for me, it's sometimes physical, my heart. It feels like I'm having a heart attack. It'll tighten up or I'll get crying fits. I I keep a lot of this shit to myself and try to handle it. If I feel anxiety, it's like a threshold. I'll try to get it out before I go out in public. So like watch some videos of kids with cancer and like try to cry or get it out. But yeah, it's usually a feeling of disconnection, and my dad had it, uh, a lot of my Irish side of my family had it, and for me, it, it would get weird, like I would get disconnected thoughts, I would feel like I wasn't in control, and that's to me the peak of the anxiety, now I'm like in fight or flight in my head, so I tried to just center myself, I would try to pass time, and that was really good. Anxiety for me, it's taking too many left hand turns in your head. You know what I mean? You're just constantly taking what if, what if, until you're spiraling into the nothing, right? It's the abyss and it never ends. You could keep taking left hand turns in your brain. So I had something similar, like when Petty were, they'd be talking in class and I'd just be somewhere else. And like, and what if we built out this awesome tree house and we added carpets? You can't think of whatever they're doing in the moment and in the present. The ADHD thing is the lack of focus. I think anxiety is more like a panic, like an adrenaline feeling. I want to say I probably could have not taken meds, 
but I'm not going to say I wasn't like um, a handful. Realistically, mm-hmm. I was a handful growing up. So it's tough. But at the same time, like putting people on meds, too much meds, it's, it's just something you got to pay attention to and try to be in touch with it. That's all. But I feel for people that are in college, like trying to do all these classes and working a day job and they got a significant partner and they're in a band. I get meds help. So it's tough. It's some of them are addicted. It's just, it's tough. The anxiety is scary because all of these thoughts go through your mind. And even though logically it's not making sense, the fear is still there. And the thought that this is going to happen, it could be really paralyzing. The perfect word. So as a child, what were some of the things that you were able to do to kind of quell the anxiety? Did your parents ever try therapy or was there, you talked about music. What were some of the other things that you did to try to quiet your mind? Well, the parents, they tried a lot of different things. I, I was in counseling since about six or so. We grew up in Marin County, a lot of alternative therapy. Part of the ADD thing correlated with substance abuse because when you're on a med and then your brain is relying on that med to do something, you correlate that with, oh, this med, if it makes me feel good, is the same thing as that med. And you just go down a rabbit hole of stuff sometimes. So drug abuse in my teens kind of stemmed a little bit from that. Divorce, like family gets divorced. That you think as a kid, and I grew up from a military family, I'm like, oh, I don't give a fuck that that happened. Big deal. But you cared deep down. I didn't know I cared. It took me years to realize I, I, I cared. So I think some of the introspecting things that I got going on now are from qualities of realizing when I was young, I didn't do that and had a lot of issues because of that. But I did a lot of stuff. Stealing, I, I like sugar. Um, those are some of the bad things like <laughs> vandalism and spray painting. And, and sugar was bad because we have diabetes in our family, the bad type. And that's why it was sketch because you can develop it. But the positive things were, I liked like book reports. I liked music. I would get a tape recorder. I'd record to the back of some video game and like sing over the video game, sing. record on I another say, tape absolutely. recorder, and then learned a little bit of guitar, note by note, and then that helped. There's so many different like ways of therapy yeah. when it comes to all those different like ADHD, depression, anxiety, like all of that. Yeah. And that's, I think, why so many musicians like emotionally are drawn to music at a young age. Yeah. It's the most important thing to all of us. People transcend in meditation all the time through breathing exercises. There's types of breathing that can do relaxation, uh, get energy up. And I think music is tied in with that. Being on stage with the band (laughs) in front of people is feeling that you don't get anywhere else. For the fans, we love going to live shows. And then as a band playing on stage, you guys feed off of the energy you get from the fans. So like you're saying, it's this incredible transfer of energy and everybody is on the same page. And that is such a good feeling. Totally agree. I love the melodies that you guys have. And there are times where it kind of sounds like Beach Boys because... All your voices come together so well in, in the harmony that I really appreciate. Yeah. It's it's really beautiful, especially uh, with the, the slower, easygoing songs. Yeah. Yeah, I like it I like that type of thing, like between the heavy and the soft. Yeah, I think it shows a lot of depth when a band can do uh, more than, you know, just one kind of song. 
And it probably feels really good for you as a band too, because we all have such a great range of emotions and you should be able to express that in your songs. So we've talked about anxiety, but depression is a whole different thing. Where anxiety, you're all kind of riled up and there's a lot of fear involved. Depression is hiding away, but also having negative thoughts pervade your mind. I want people to realize that when you're in it, those thoughts come from you, but it's part of the disorder. It's part Mm -hmm. of the condition. So we don't want to put too much weight into those thoughts when you're in it. But the scary thing is, is that it feels very real. Authentic. Most of my families had depression. Just so many times, it's hard to get out of bed, even days, if it's really bad. And I think that every person has a degree of depression. It's the same as an addiction. Do you drink or smoke so much that you can't get normal shit done in your life? I think that's the question of when depression is a big issue. This year has been, fuck, it's been really rough. Losing my dad and I lost an ex-girlfriend and uh, a good friend too. And it was just bleak. So the grieving process was tough for me. I was getting foreign thoughts that were really dark. I've had that since I was a little kid. And I've just found that it passes after a while. I tried John's Ward and natural stuff or antidepressants. I try to keep it natural because I'm on a couple of other meds. And I just don't want to keep dumping on my liver. But John's wort is a natural thing that helped me. But I do get severe things that it won't cut it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm feeling like shit. People can probably tell. I can't really fake it. It'll eventually go away. And I have affirmational stuff. Like, I'll sleep with these things that are like, you have good things coming. You have amazing qualities. You are, The world is open for you. That reminds me of being a kid. When you're a kid, you were told that type of stuff. And as an adult... People aren't saying positive stuff. So I like brainwashing my head with that because <laughs> yeah. we're not told positive stuff. We have to learn that for ourselves. And that's a part of society with the name The Happies that's like a striver name. It's a name to live up to, to try to strive for because the world is not that happy. We all know that deep down. That's a good point because it's always nice to think that we have parents or family or friends that can encourage and support us on a daily basis. But the reality is, is that that may not be so. In fact, there might be people that are doing the opposite. What are you down? Or what are you doing? Or when's this going to happen? Anyways, all those questions, but it's managing yourself and giving yourself positive affirmations, managing your mind. And that doesn't always happen with things like depression and anxiety, because if it gets bad, you may need medication or therapy or something to help really get over that period. Because I think there's also different things physiologically that could be happening, you know, with our, uh, you know, levels or yeah, this year. There's been a high increase in suicides and drug relapses. I've had friends personally relapse on heavy drugs, and it it sucks to see. It really sucks to see that. Someone who's been doing good for years, and then everything's shut down, and they're working less, they're inside all day, so they go do heroin. That sucks to see, and uh, it's really hard for me to see that. 
a big thing for me has been driving. I just go for an hour drive if I need to, because I have so much pent up shit going on and everybody does. Everybody is aware that shutting down stuff can be good, but there's a cost for people that work to survive and they can't work. That is some real shit too. So it's good to go for a ride. It's good to walk. It's good to bike riding is really fun in, in Marin and Sonoma. A lot of people like riding up on hills. It's a beautiful spot for that. Seeing nature, our guitarists like surfing. Rhett likes the beach a lot. Ben likes off-roading. We all have our little things we do, but I like driving and driving helps just schmobbing. I drove around <laughs> the United States one time. I drove. I drove all the way to Florida. You back. just snapped. I had, drove across. The I had a breakup with a girlfriend. Yeah. This guitarist left my band. My grandma was sick, and I just went all the way around to Florida and back to open mics, putting up stickers everywhere. I'm branding the fucking happies. When I was doing research on you, Nick, you mentioned light therapy as something that you've tried. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else have you tried for depression? Have you been on medication? Have you done any therapy? Yeah. I've been on and off meds for depression since I was probably 14 or so. I swear I had symptoms of depression in elementary school, severe mm -hmm. symptoms of depression. And I remember just listening to offspring and Blake on A2 and Sismo Dapper just bawling and just like, why is everything so fucked up in the world? And just like talking to friends, I'd be like, you ever feel really bad? They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I knew I had something going on. So yeah, I've, I've been on seriously, like every fucking med under the sun, Abilify, uh, Prozac, because they'll work and then they just won't work. And you're like, well, I'm not going to take this thing that's a problem in my family too, where they would take shit and then they'd feel better and forget the thing that helped them. So I'm going to stop taking the med and then they're fucking crazy. So yeah. uh, I try not to do that. I try to responsibly taper or talk to a doctor. But yeah, so Bilify, Prozac, a lot of shit for anxiety, Remeron I had tried, which actually gave me Tardea, that thing where your neck locks up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it Tardive Dyskinesia? Tardive Dyskinesia? Like yeah, your neck locks because you had an allergic reaction to the med, and that mm. really freaked me out. And uh, some of these meds for me had qualities like I had sleep paralysis. So these meds would bring me to these weird things to be eating food at night, and then I'm laying there, and then I can't breathe, and I'm seeing weird shit in the corner of my eye, like the girl from The Ring with the black hair, like deep demonic <laughs> shit. It's oh, called no. hypogenetic, hypogenetic sensory something. Or, there's a name for when you see shit through sleep paralysis, but... If you just type in sleep paralysis girl on Google, it's always the same fucking chick with black hair, hella creepy. It's like your worst <laughs> nightmare and a pressure on your chest to not oh breathe. My gosh. I, so these meds would sometimes induce more of that. And I'd be like, I don't give a fuck. I'm not taking these meds. If I get that side effect, I'm not. At a young age, that shit would be really weird for me. That's yeah. scary for anybody. That is scary for anybody. Is that was that Ambien by any chance? Because I know No, I've been on Ambien and I was calling people and not remembering I called them, playing songs to people and shit. And like, <laughs> hey, what's up? I know we dated ten years ago. Here's a song I'm working on. Right now. <laughs> and then in the morning I'm like, Oh my god, oh my god, what the fuck did I just do? Yeah, that's like it, alcohol. No, 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 no. 
<laughs> no, Ambien, I watched a thing on it. That is a weird drug. Ambien it's has weird. been known to get people who are paralyzed in their body to be able to walk again. That drug is unbelievably weird. And it's a delirium when you stay up on it. And yeah, I was on Lunesta and Ambien for a while. And uh, dude, that drug does some scientifically insanely weird shit. You'll see stuff. You'll do stuff you wish you didn't do. There are a ton of stories of, you know, people eating at night and doing exactly. Just weird shit. Yeah. You mentioned your family and oftentimes things like mood disorders, self-medicating, all of these things can get passed down Uh through families. And I did read that after high school, you got into Oxycontin, which is a opioid. And now what incidents started you taking painkillers? All right. So from a kid, I'm going to say 15 or 16. This is around the time of a divorce. So I was probably depressed about my family not working out and my siblings being sad. Not to be like too dramatic, but a little bit of learning disabilities and not doing good in school. But I I wanted to try opium. I didn't want to try Oxycontin. Opium is not as strong. It's 10% of what heroin would be. One day I was with friends and I wanted to try opium. So I had tried codeine and Tylenol 3s and Vicodin. Those were just recreational things at school kids had. And I didn't even know that Adderall and Dexedrine and these pills I was on were amphetamine until I was 14 years old. I had heard my dad go, isn't that speed in the doctor room? But I didn't know. I started thinking it's cool to get into drugs and shit. I started thinking that drugs make you fucking smart. And I really want to tell people... To a big degree, it is a huge fallacy and fucking made up thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm way more creative when I'm not on drugs. However, at that time, I had gone to try an opium and I was with a friend and we're smoking it. And then I'm feeling it. I feel really good. I'm very relaxed. And he's, yeah, this is some good black tar opium. And I'm like, what do you mean? Kind of nodding. What do you mean black tar opium? Why do you say black tar before it? And he tells me it's heroin. So I had smoked heroin on accident and it felt really good. So I felt how people probably did with pot. Oh, I got lied to. Heroin's not that bad. But I kept that to myself. And then uh, Oxycon 80s snuck into school. I had friends just 80 80 milligrams. That's a lot of dope in one pill. Mind you, this was pure and it didn't have Tylenol in it. So recreationally, I started with oxycodone with Percocet, and then I worked my way up. I looked up to a lot of people like Kurt Cobain and Bradley Noel and all these fucking old soldiers who were on opium and all that. I thought it was cool. I I thought it was fantasized, and I thought it was like gloricized it. Mm -hmm. So I just slowly turned into a junkie. And the reason I knew I was one day is with those pills, I took them maybe three days in a row. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first took him, I would throw up and then feel high. One day I'm just sitting there and I'm trying to do homework and I'm like, oh, I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. And so I become physically dependent on opiates. And mm-hmm. that's just how quick it was. It was like a week of doing them. My dad was a fireman and he got injured really bad. And I would steal his meds and he would put them away very far. I was like digging and looking for shit. So I, I had taken some of his stuff and he kicked it, but I had a harder time with it. I want to be real that opiates had a positive effect to help with my depression, but I was trying to escape. You can take mm-hmm. a med and then the meds can take you. 
You know, Johnny Cash used to say that a lot. The Mets started taking me. You have songs called Bipolar and Manic. And you yeah. talk about ADHD. Yeah. Do you feel that you have bipolar? I grew up with a lot of friends who are bipolar. I have been tested for bipolar. I was on lithium for a little bit. I, I realized I have more of a depression anxiety issue. Mm -hmm. uh, they call it major depressive disorder where you fall into a lapse of depression and it's hard to get out of and anxiety as well. But I thought once I soldiered up and pushed myself out of it, I thought because I felt good later that I was being bipolar, but it was just a point where I cut down with the depression and I was able to physically get my brain moving and go out and do shit. But bipolar, growing up in recovery, a lot of my friends I grew up with have bipolar. I still have a lot of friends who have bipolar. The girl who passed away right when my dad did was bipolar. Also, the major depressive disorder was similar cycle like with relationships. So in relationships in general, I think I had the same epiphany with depression where I thought love felt like bipolar, but it was more of just hard times and then they're good. So when I can't write shit, I think of writing from another person's perspective. So I wrote it from the perspectives of my friends a little bit. Well, I'm really sorry to hear about your friend. She overdosed, and I've had some friends commit suicide, which to me is sometimes almost harder for me as an intuitively sensitive type of guy. Suicide is tough. A lot of people, when they die of age, it's like through morphine, so they don't have pain. I think opiates serve a purpose. At least with an overdose, they didn't die painfully. They probably fell asleep. But she had an accidental overdose. She had taken a pill and it probably had fentanyl in it and just boom, just hit the ground. And that was that. She was a really vibrant person. I've had a couple people I've dated die because I had dated in recovery and I was frequenting meetings and you forget that you're talking to someone, they're very normal. And then when they go home, they might be smoking heroin or something. And you don't know about that because they're smiling and they're positive and you have no idea that they have a second life going on. So I lost a lot of friends through that. And I don't always see it as black and white as it's just um, unbelievably tragic. It is, but for my own peace of mind, I see it as they made a really bad decision and they paid for it. Yeah. Well, I'm also sorry about your dad cancer it was pancreatic cancer and it was really slow and i feel for my siblings too my brother and sister yeah my dad had pancreatic cancer and, and it's pretty quick it's quick quick is so true it happened so fucking mm. quick it kind of haunted me a little bit i don't want to say that but i worked very hard with a counselor and just trying to get it out and it never goes away because they're your parent but what i'm talking about is the toxic things like where you just stop giving a fuck about life. That's the same as when mental health is in the same level as addiction, when it is interfering with the things you have to get done in life. But yeah, I fucking hate cancer. And sometimes the only thing that I can think of when I'm really depressed is like these little kids with cancer. They're the real fucking badasses. We don't know shit. <laughs> I, there are kids in SF right now battling cancer that are going to die. And there's people that went to war and got their legs blown off. There's... There's fucked up shit in the world. I think of that all the time to be grateful as much as I can. Well, Nick, you overcame opioids and have overcome a lot, a lot that we haven't really even gotten into yet. But give yourself credit for that because that is a lot. And, you know, there's some people that don't make it out. 
but you did. Yeah. And you guys have so much potential with your music. What I think would be a good thing to do right now, which I think your dad would love, is for you to play a song. Let's take a break and have you guys play yeah. a song. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Bad shit happens, but this fucking thing and meds, this is my shit right here. This helps me feel better and uh, helps other people feel better. And I fucking I love life. I'm challenged sometimes by mental health. It's something that I can't overcome. And you just got to ride out the fucking wave of it. So this is a new song off the new album that we're recording right now. All right. I'm song just don't know just don't know okay well nick i wanted to ask a couple more questions first of all you're a survivor and 
I'm glad you're really enjoying your life because I want people to know that even though we go through ups and downs and sometimes it's a roller coaster that we can have stability and happiness with the music and our band and all those things. And I can't wait to see you guys live. But there was a tough time in your life where you talked about the Oxycontin and then you also had a, a short stint in jail. What was happening at that point in your life? Well, basically, either people in the Oxycon thing, they end up going to jail, they end up prostituting themselves, or they end up dead. Jails, institutions, and death is what comes from hardcore addiction. And I ended up in institutions. What it does is when you're physically dependent and the pills start taking you, is you start doing dumb shit, writing checks that aren't good checks, or taking shit and selling it for drugs apologizing a week later about it and then trying to pay them back. Just stupid shit. And at that age too, a lot of life lessons. I'll put it this way. Like I never thought I'd go to jail. And in a lot of ways, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I hated it so much that I was like, I'll change my life to not go back to that fucking shit. <laughs> That's just the truth. Mm. Like I went, I went to 850 Bryant, which is San Francisco's jail. So I'm this from the suburbs with a pill problem and there's kids from hunter's point with like murder charges and there's some crazy stories I'll, t- I'll tell one really quick story there was this guy who was a serial killer in marin county jail and he was 70 something his name was naso and this kid i had grown up with school we're in a bullpen which is like a room where they hold you to go to court and Nasa walked by and he had been accused of killing all these 17-year-old girls in the 70s and raping them. And he walked by the bullpen. My friends, oh, you're the dude from the news. You're my hero. And then I went behind him in court and I'm like, you're a fucking piece of shit. I never forgot about that. <laughs> I didn't like how my friend was kissing his ass. And as crazy as it sounds, every single crime people do, there is a reason from a fucked up childhood most of the time or like some sort of thing and I think people are naturally yeah, evil yeah so Not it's it's evil. tough but I would get all my pills on this place in SF in uh, the Tenderloin District it was called Pill Hill you go to Hate Street and they're like I got shrooms I got acid well Pill Hill is like I got methadone I got fentanyl I got Chiba heroin I have crack so I'd walk down and I'd collect all my shit, but basically these cops had come out like a sting operation. I was blacked out and I thought somebody had taken my wallet, but my friend had my wallet. And uh, I chased this uh, drug dealer. Uh, then she punched me in the face. Drugs, dude. You want to do drugs? They're great. <laughs> Opiates. So I, she ran to this group of dudes. They gave me a beer. I'm chilling with my backpack. And then one, two, three, four. There was seven cops and I had nowhere to go. And they just sent me to 850 Bryant, and it was a dirty-ass jail in SF. And just fucking, like, hell on earth. Really shitty place. So not only did I go to Marin's jail, I had to go to SF's jail, but they thought I was selling drugs. I also had spent three days in jail once on an accident where they thought I was somebody else. Oh, no. In a drug court, and I, I was on drugs. There's this weird thing in my life where I'd just be like, well, I'm doing bad shit, so this must be karma. But normal people would be like, no, this is fucking stupid. And I realized the only way for me to ever not have to go through this again is to not fuck with opiates and Oxycontin. And uh, so that's what it took. 
I did seven months. I was on the run for a week on Hate Ashbury. And then I lived in an abandoned house, which in Riddle, this song I, is why I say that. I lived in an abandoned house, lit cigarettes off the stove. So I was out a week and then I had to go back to jail and serve seven more months. So it was about 14 months with a little breaks here and there and shit. And then during that time, is that when you got off opioids? I did. I did drug replacement therapy, uh, like Suboxone. And then I had also done mental health meetings at Kaiser. I lived in a halfway house for four years in San Rafael. All this during uh, court things where I'd have to go each week. And there's another story about how I wasn't supposed to be at bars and I got caught at a bar doing a show. And the head of the probation officers was hanging out there that night and was like, you're good. It's fine. You like music and I'm not going to fucking make you go to jail. Like you can talk to your PO. And I had this cool probation officer, Matt, but he just knew that music would help me. It's very funny because I I was convinced for years that the drugs really were like what made cool music. And then I really was so much better without drugs. (laughs) On drugs. I was nodding and I couldn't stay awake and it was the music began for me on a serious level of a business or like a real band when I stopped using. Sitting through jail, I formulated what I wanted to do and what type of music. I would write down songs like Pancakes was a song that I wrote in jail. And a lot of songs I wrote in jail or I put two pieces together in a notepad. And I executed to my word. I I did what I said I was going to do in jail and I did it. I saw so many people go in and out of jail, and I didn't want that. So I really escaped through the music to give myself credit. I've done more time in jails than a lot of gangster rappers, so it's, I'm a real motherfucker. I've seen a lot of shit, and there's history. Excuse my language. OG Petty. Well, Nick, you are a survivor and a thriver. You took advantage of your time in jail, and you put together a plan, and it's all playing out for you. So... Always give yourself credit for that because you have really challenged yourself and you've overcome a lot. And opioid addiction is nothing to uh, sneeze at. That's a big deal. In hindsight, what helped me was having some freedom, but having strict structure. Like in the military for people, it was that strictness and discipline of if I don't do something, there's punishment. It just did something for me. When I was younger, I wanted to do the military and I needed something to just kick my ass. And and unfortunately, it was the correctional institutions. After four or five times, I went to a lot of rehabs. A lot of people didn't think I would uh, get clean. And I, I definitely proved a lot of people wrong. I really did. And yeah, it's almost been 10 years, no fucking opiates, no Oxycontin and all that. So I'm very grateful. Don't give up. I don't forget mm-hmm. how bad jail is. That's mm-hmm. a big one. And detox. Yeah. It's hard to forget when yeah. your friends are collapsing and dying too. It's a gnarly drug and I'm so glad every day I wake up. Yeah. And I think you're using your voice and your music for good. I mean, yeah. just speaking out and telling your story and letting yeah. people relate to that. So as a band, is there anything else that you would like to say about mental health, about your music? I just think that our music's a nice escape for people with mental health. And the authenticity of knowing that the person in the band 
isn't full of shit. They went through stuff. They still have challenges and other people in the band go through their challenges. And that we have a level of empathy towards the people in mental health. I want people to know yeah. it's okay, specifically guys, speaking about feelings. Yeah. I mean, for so generations for sure. of men being told to be men, you can still be a man and have emotion. Every musician ever is pretty manly, and they're all rich and famous, and they have hella emotions. People need to express their feelings, and a lot of yeah. people are told, if you're depressed, it's your own fault. Yeah, That's yeah. Not- I've felt like that a million times. We have a culture where people say, oh, you made a mistake, you're a fuck up. I don't personally stand with that. I think people will make mistakes and become better people if they learn from their mistakes. The road to life is under construction and shit and that it's constantly um, adapting and changing and that we're not these people who are just like going to be perfect and that nobody is. That's a big one. And I'm glad Ben said that. There's um, a piece of advice for you know folks struggling. It's not easy. It's going to take a while. It's nothing that has to happen overnight. Just but channel that energy. If you can, I know it sounds cliche, but put that shit into your music. I mean, Nick did that with his stint in jail and putting his energy into music. And whatever tough time you're doing, it's, you can get something really beautiful out of those dark times. Yeah, in the moment, you might not either. It may take it. a long time. But, so, but just stick with it, and it will be better on the other you know, the grass is greener if you just keep pushing. It's about oh, keep yeah. pushing. If you ever that. stop, like, that's where you get stuck. But yeah. if you keep pushing, you'll get somewhere. Yeah, keep moving, roll with the punches. And the I think that's a really big thing, too. I have my days. I have my days where I feel a challenge worse than when I was on the drugs and everything's really fucked. Like, I just wake up and everything is just really intense and sketch. And that's why I'll continue to have songs, though. So you can't have the flower without the fertilizer. You have to just keep rolling with the punches and stay positive and shit. The don't give up thing, James Brown used to say that all the time. Like, you give up, you're dead. I relate a lot to that. Everyone was crying when my dad died. And so I like to make people proud. My dad still lives with me. I'm sure you can relate. I still talk to my dad all the time. And his conscience is stronger than it was before. Whenever I do bad shit, it's like even stronger. So I just, I love my pops. And I want to just make them proud and keep grinding and hustling. Well, that's a great way to end it because I know he's looking down on you and proud. And thank you guys for being so open and honest and persistent because that's really it, right? It's a journey. Life's this incredible journey. And when we're in the, the tough times, it's sometimes hard to appreciate it. But when you see it, and look back at the big picture. It's kind of this beautiful movie that's happening. So yeah. thank you so much, guys. And thank you again yeah, for, the, for the music. Yeah, we had a great course. time. And uh, yeah, like, I think it's cool <laughs> to Thanks talk about what you do. Yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you for doing oh, what you do. Yeah. Thank you. Seriously. Thanks. Next, we have expert Sally Ann Gross, a 30-year veteran of the music industry and currently a program director and teacher at the University of Westminster. Sally co-authored the book, Can Music Make You Sick? Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition, based on the largest study on mental health in the music industry, funded by the charity Help Musicians UK. One thing that you said was, we find out from our interviews is that making music is therapeutic, but the pursuit of a musical career is traumatic. And we just did an interview with Nick Petty of the Happies, and he's a good example of that because Nick's traumas did come from mental 
issues along with addiction. So a lot of musicians know the ups and downs of a musician's lifestyle, but what are some of the unexpected pitfalls when you have a career in the music industry? I would say one of the unexpected pitfalls is that in the beginning, whenever anyone comes to music, even when we're very young, is that we enjoy it. It's pleasurable. One of the things that's really interesting about when you switch from being in that pleasurable zone, in that fun zone, to suddenly there's a switch that's invisible because it creeps up on you. But suddenly you're in that zone where it's all work. For someone that's worked in the music industry, as I have for over 30 years, and I saw Amy Winehouse play on a stage in a park when she was 14. And Moby lived in my house before Go (laughs) was released. But the unexpected thing can be that moment when this thing that you love, and it's hard not only to recognize it, but it's very hard to admit that it's happening. It's almost like you internalize that secret. The thing with mental health is being truthful, being able to say, this is how I feel right now. And there's this taboo in the music world. You can't say you're having a bad day. They're trying to keep up appearances. Mm -hmm. No matter whether you're in a punk band or a metal band, there's still an appearance to keep up. So we say that it's okay not to be okay. But actually to be able to say that, it's a big thing. Well, I can also imagine if there is, let's say, an artist like Amy Winehouse, who has been doing this for so long and is doing it as a passion and wants this as a career, then all of a sudden she takes off and all of this body of music is exposed to the world and people love it. It's something that she has been aspiring to, but when it happens... All of the pressure, all of the uh, working with the record labels and the numbers and trying to keep things together from the outside. But when an aspiring musician finally makes it and they're having a hard time dealing with the stress of being in the limelight, I don't know who prepares them for that or even if we can be prepared for that. People will say, why? Why are you upset? Or why is this difficult for you? This is what you've been wanting for so long. This is your dream. And so that's also hard to deal with. People not being able to understand or have any compassion for that. Totally. That's absolutely what happens. In our study, we really show that that idea that you're going to be successful and you're going to be able to say what you want to do. It's not necessarily true at all. There's lots of myths that circulate in the music industry. And when you become successful and the empathy leaves, in a way, it's almost tragic. It's a bit like being a racehorse. Everyone wants you to be as fit and ready to go. But where is that thought of the rest days, the need to recuperate, the need to take time. And, and of course, empathy is the way in which we, we can connect with that. So it is hard. I read in the book, you make an analogy of making it in music to an addiction of gambling. So mm. I wanted you to explain that analogy. Well, it's the thought that if I put the penny in the slot this one more time, And if you win a little bit, so you get booked to play two dates here and you get to two dates there. And 
And every little thing that you do, you think, okay, that's going to keep me in, rather than take a bigger picture view, which says, actually, it really might be in your interest not to tour right now. When we spoke to musicians, the idea of giving up or retiring was so difficult for them even to articulate. That's why we thought it was very much like an addiction, because when you talk to people that are addicted to something, they'll, they have every reason why that isn't the thing. Either they won't talk about it, so their avoidance strategies are so high. <laughs> They're so good at it. And you're like, I really don't think you should have another drink. But the whole And people that are deeply in addiction can spend a lot of time being in their addiction. It's very time consuming and you're trying to get them to do something else and they're just in it. And that was one of the things that I was really trying to get people to talk about was this relationship to music when maybe it isn't helping them. They're not focused on themselves anymore or their loved ones or anyone else. It's just that thing. And that's what an addiction does, I think. Speaking about addiction, I talked about Nick Petty. and. One thing that he did was he got involved in drugs because he idolized people like Brad Knoll of Sublime and Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. And he thought that if he could do the drugs that they did, that he could be more creative. And that, uh, he learned, was definitely not true, but he had to learn the hard way. What are your ideas when having to deal with musicians and addiction? Well, I've had to do that in my life, and it's very hard. That's very hard. And I I don't have answers. I have reflections on what has happened, and everybody is different. Everybody's different. Everybody's addiction, everybody's circumstances, what brought them to that place. But when you're in a professional relationship with those people and you're trying to work with them, that sets up all kinds of challenges. You can't force people into rehab. You can't force them into therapy. You can't make them stay. In the end, those people have to do that work themselves. But I think that you can have those conversations. I think you can not ignore it. I've been in those situations where I've just thought, oh, just got to get through this today. I've got to get through to the end of next week. So we're just going to ignore it because the artists are often the people that create the work for all the other people around. And if that artist stopped working, then everybody stops working. It's not just pulling one person out. And I can really understand the complex way in which that works. And I've been there and I've seen it. I've been in situations where it's been very difficult to get to the next gig, to get to the next show, to get on the plane. So many people start to give their opinion as well. But I also think that's a really difficult thing because everybody's got, in most cases with successful bands and successful artists, there will be several key players, all who have a vested interest in the artist's performing or making the record or turning up for the tv slot or doing the radio interview i mean we saw it tragically in the avici documentary mm -hmm. although we can all have empathy and we can learn and we can be trained i think it's really good this move towards people working in the industry doing mental health first aiding becoming more aware of symptoms becoming more aware of how to potentially help in those situations or support the artist 
Can you think of a situation where an approach to a musician or approach to a situation where it was done successfully, where someone was on board and, and recognizing the problem, whether it's a mental health issue or an addiction, and things got better from that action? There are successful interventions. The best situations for me have always involved allowing that person to stop working for a while. Mm. And that's a rest. Yeah, that is a difficult thing. I mean, you have to kind of go, this isn't working. Although that is always difficult and it always has implications, particularly that moment when things are taking off for you. And then everyone's like, oh, you can't stop now. Like, yeah, but this is the album that needs to break. But actually, when you see people really in a bad place and they've been able to step back and they've been supported in their stepping back, they've been able to get better and regroup and come back, then they come back stronger. The music industry is a very fluctuating place. So it's not just bands and it's not just singers, but there are many, many people working in the industry who have been in a band or have been signed. So normalizing the fact that there are other things that you can do, that you don't have to just be in front of the camera or just be in the mic or in the van, I think is really good for people to understand that because I think there's a kind of that fear that it's everything or nothing. It's everything or nothing. One thing you brought up was that sometimes musicians may not look at the bigger picture of all the other career opportunities and other areas of music, whether it's producing, whether it's audio engineering, any of these other positions that are within the industry that may not be, let's say, the lead singer or the one thing that they thought they were going to be forever. I mean, what are some of the uncomfortable, maybe practical questions that you might talk about with an up-and-coming musician? seeing the potential for other avenues for career and and I think that sport is a very good way to look at it so whether it's basketball in England football becoming the coach or becoming a manager is seen as a progression that people are like that's admirable but in the music industry particularly there's a kind of fetishization on just being the artist mm-hmm. where actually you can be a very successful songwriter You know, so we've got brilliant songwriters that aren't in the limelight every day. They're not getting on the bus and normalizing that. And the career opportunities for a viable money-making career is actually very short in the music industry. If you really look at the data and it's very clear. So if you've invested so much of your life and absolutely these people by and large have done, you have to be prepared to realize that your knowledge is not going to waste. There's a lot of knowledges that musicians have and they can be used in in different ways. People say to me, oh, it's very pessimistic. And I said, no, it's not pessimistic. It's being realistic. It's facing what are the realities? How do we navigate our lives in a more realistic way so that we can be healthier we can be okay rather than putting unrealistic stresses into a situation absolutely there are lots of jobbing musicians lots of jobbing songwriters lots of people working in management people that have gone from 
on stage to working in record companies to teaching all of these things Mm -hmm. should be seen as perfectly natural and valuable ways I I noticed in America you always call it the side hustle which I really like (laughs) because I like that idea that's true we do say that as you know the side hustle you got the main job and then you got the side hustle which is usually something you're really passionate about but I just love the whole idea of opening up all the different things that you could do within the music industry I mean I know musicians from other bands that have worked in film that do music in film or they work for an agency that does music for corporate brands or they do music videos. I mean, there's so many creative avenues that you could pursue. So I really like that discussion. A lot of musicians who come on our podcast talk about how they got into music because they wanted a way to express their emotions. In society, I guess it's okay for a male musician to express their anger, express being heartbroken by a breakup, or having all of these thoughts through music seems to be an acceptable way to express. Even going to a live show and going into the mosh pit or singing at the top of their voice, you could do that at the live show, but you can't necessarily express the same way on a day-to-day basis. But therapy, even though it's not as, let's say, widely embraced within the music mm-hmm. industry, it really is just another form of expression, expression through words that sometimes can be difficult right? To be honest with yourself, to be honest with another person. And sometimes that that feels uh, like you're a little bit more exposed. But I find that the more honest you can be is when all the the good stuff happens, right? All the magic happens. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes it takes experience to really get to the point where you feel like you can take control of your life, control of your career, creating boundaries and saying, you know what, I need to take a break right now. Or, you know what, let's pre-plan and make sure that mental health is a priority on this tour. Let's make sure that we go home for this week or whatever it is, nutrition or lifestyle change, but really having the awareness, but also taking action. Sally mm-hmm. Ann Gross, thank you so much for helping to normalize the conversations on mental health and also bringing us insight and uh, some ideas for action on how to better improve our mental health and especially for musicians. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's lovely. Enjoy your sunshine. We have the most rain here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A big thank you to our musical guests, Nick Petty and the Happies, and our expert, Sally Ann Gross. For more information on The Happies, their tour dates, and upcoming album, ADHD, visit thehappiesofficial.com, follow The Happies on their socials, at The Happies Band, and at The Happies. And for more information on Sally Ann Gross and her book, Can Music Make You Sick?, visit sallyanngross.com. So until next time, be brave. Ask for help and be persistent in finding the mental help that you need. Check Your Head Podcast is kindly supported and partnered with Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, DBSA San Gabriel Valley, Earshot Media, and Lemon Tree Studios in Los Angeles. Visit CheckYourHeadPodcast.com where we have over 100 solutions for mental help, 
be our friends on social media at Check Your Head Podcast. Watch us on YouTube and support us with a kind donation on CheckYourHeadPodcast.com. Check Your Head Podcast is sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit with all donations being tax deductible. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening.